0: I'm Steph. And I'm Leslie. And And this this is Church Historia Historia Season 2.
1: Hey, all Welcome back to Season 2 of Church Historia. We are really excited to be back and really appreciate you joining us for our second season. We hope that you really enjoy it. We are taking a very different uh, slice of time. We're going to be looking at Christianity in late antiquity and the early medieval period. So we'll be doing some... Digging through the archives for this season, and we hope that you enjoy it. I know this has been a fun one for us. Oh,
0: yeah. Totally.
1: I've learned so much.
0: So this episode, Steph, where are we starting on this glorious journey? We're going to start with
1: Constantine and specifically his involvement in establishing the legality of Christianity. Also, his involvement in encouraging church unity and calling one of the church first church councils and the Council Mm. of Nicaea. And then we'll also talk a little bit about how this idea of a divinely appointed emperor connects through between ancient Rome and then into Christianity in late antiquity and then on into the medieval period. So we've got a lot of stuff to cover today. So let's jump in. Let's do it. Tell me what
0: late antiquity actually means.
1: Yeah, so we're really going to be from about the 300s or the 4th century up through eh, the 1100s or the 12th century. Periodization in history is really hard. It's not like somebody wakes up one morning and says, Ah, yes, we have hereby declared that we are now in late antiquity. (laughs) It's kind of a general trend. So in this general trend, we're going to see some pretty big changes in the Roman Empire. We're going to be spending a lot of time in Rome, Byzantium, Europe this season. So we're going to talk in a fairly Eurocentric way. It's not to Mm -hmm. say that other things aren't happening in other places. Mm -hmm. And when you start getting into this question of periodization, it helps to overlay a geography on that as well, Mm -hmm. um, because obviously different places in the world have different things going on, and their kind of periods of development may differ. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about late antiquity and the early medieval period, we're really talking about Europe and kind of the near, what we call now the Near East, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: also Northern Africa as well. So late antiquity, again, roughly 300s to 500s, 600s. Again, it's squishy. Squishy. Very squishy.
0: Talking about historical periods is squishy makes me happy.
1: Yeah. So before we can get to the 300s, let's start with Jesus. It's always a good choice to start with Jesus. I feel like when doing a podcast on Christian church history, probably, probably should start with Jesus. with Jesus. So Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And the early church says, got it. We are on it. So... (laughs) Yes, sir. Yep. Off we go. Off we go. We have
0: been greatly commissioned. Yep. And off we go into the world.
1: Yep. So between that commissioning in whatever year that is, Mm -hmm. 31, I don't know that we know when the Great Commission took place, but between that and... mm, the late one hundreds, Christianity spreads pretty far through kind of Israel, Palestine, grassroots, uh, sort of yeah, things. yeah, Greece, even a little bit into northern Africa and Egypt, and it's kind of doing its small community, grassroots spread thing that we can
0: see through Paul's letters, kind of.
1: Yeah, Paul, kind of- Paul's letters are a great indication of you know getting to start to see some of that movement and some of that development. And so Christianity keeps growing, keeps spreading. We talked a little bit last season about the Syriac church going out to the east, setting up a Christian community in southern India, that Syriac Christianity spreading Mm -hmm. along the Silk Road up through India, Central Asia, into China. So certainly by the time we get into the 300s, Christianity is spreading pretty dramatically, but it's still this relatively small cult, not necessarily in the drink the Kool-Aid type of cult, but more like mystery religion that's not entirely understood. And it goes through periods of persecution, uh, that kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's fine, sometimes it's not. Usually when the Roman Empire is struggling with something. So if there's been a lot of kind of attacks on the border, or if people feel like roman culture is in decline that's a big one of mm-hmm. we're losing the greatness of our ancestors and oh, so who who are we going to blame well let's blame the christians who won't participate in the cult of the emperor and uh-huh. who sometimes don't like going to the theater and theater being like hippodrome type yep. gladiatorial combat stuff so christians along with others get kind of scapegoated during those times as you know you're you're the reason for our downfall hmm. Also Christianity during this period is heavily appealing to the working class, poor, uneducated
0: mm-hmm.
1: people within the Roman Empire. It's not a huge appeal to the elites of Rome. There's kind of an intellectual elitism and classism during this period as well. So, you know, Christianity's making certainly making inroads, but it's not in a position of power. Yet, along with that periodic persecution, Christian land was often stolen hmm. during these persecutions or re-repossessed by the government. So, yeah, so we don't see a lot of church buildings, for example, mm-hmm. until we get to Constantine's time because of that. It's really hard to build a permanent structure when your land keeps getting indeed, when property again. keeps getting seized. So, again, not to say that they're Isn't Christianity during this time, it's certainly spreading, it's certainly getting a presence, but it's very different than what it's about to become Mm. when Constantine gets involved. Yeah. So, with that... Tell us about how Constantine gets involved. Before we can get to Constantine, we have to talk about Diocletian, because he does something really important in 293. He splits the Roman Empire into two. And he puts two co-emperors in charge of each section. So the Roman Empire Mm. by this point is massive. We're going up to Hadrian's Wall in Britain all the way through North Africa and Egypt and then east into what is modern-day Turkey. Mm. So it's a massive spread. And from an administrative standpoint, it is really hard to keep it organized and keep it all together. Yeah. So Diocletian splits it in two, and Constantine is one of the co-emperors in the East. And that goes along for a little while, but eventually Constantine decides that he would like to be the single emperor in the East. He does not want to share. And so he ends up going to war with his, against his co-emperor. And so that brings us to 312, and... Three twelve is a big year for this intersection of Constantine and Christianity, and that is the year that Constantine has this dream. Mm -hmm. So this is right before the Battle of Turin, where he's fighting his rival Augustus Maxentius. Got some good Roman names.
0: Names are so great.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read for you Eusebius of Caesarea's account of Constantine's dream. Okay, wait. So Eusebius says of Constantine. But he said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens, above the sun, and bearing the inscription, Conquered by this. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement, and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition, and witnessed the miracle. He said, moreover, that he doubted within himself what the import of this apparition could be, and while he continued to ponder the reason on its meaning, night suddenly came on. Then in his sleep, the Christ of God appeared to him with the same sign which he had seen in the heavens and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens and to use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. And this sign was the Cairo, which is kind of that XP shape, which are the first yeah. two letters in Greek of the name of Christ. And so you know, under the under this sign, under this name of Christ, you will conquer. And wow. so Constantine has all these banners made and wins the Battle of Torrent. And so from that point on, Constantine has a really favorable view towards Christianity. From a historical standpoint, it's a little bit up in the air about what he believed on a personal level. Did he really convert? Was he kind of open to it plus some other things?
0: Huh.
1: Was this a strategic advantage that he was going for? So from a historical standpoint, I can't tell you for certain if Constantine actually converted. Historical memory and Roman memory and Christian memory says that Constantine had a true faith conversion and became christian and he becomes known as the greatest emperor among the saints in this kind of christian memory mm. so that's so wild to me this whole story is so fascinating because
0: you have a tradition that isn't accepted by high intellectual thought or by people who are you know and he surely was probably one of the foremost in the high class you know he's the emperor and yet this tradition sneaks into I wasn't there, so I don't know, but sneaks into his subconscious in a way that drastically changes the man's entire life. Now, whether or not, like you've said, it was a personal thing, but it is so interesting to me.
1: These stories of just like
0: there are these tellings of these things that people see and dreams.
1: Yeah. And that's that is a perfectly legitimate Constantine saw this sign, and his whole army, which also followed him on this expedition, and witnessed the miracle. The
0: whole army, the whole
1: everybody saw it. Everybody um, saw it. Yeah, and I think that's the thing we're going to see reoccurringly in this season is kind of how much of these ideas come in through the army and the army as this group of a, as it's a cross section of the population, and it's it's not a hundred percent a meritocracy, but it's a often a meritocracy in terms of how you rise through the ranks in the military. You don't have an elite class that's staying in the officer level and creates a closed circuit between the social elite and the military elite. It's a little bit more permeable in this time and what the army believes has a really big sway in how things move. So we'll we'll continue to see this idea of something happening in a military campaign having an impact on church history again and again. So Following year after Constantine now has success under this banner of, of Christ, he puts forth the Edict of Milan, which was a combination between him and um who was emperor in the western part of the em- empire in February of 313.
0: So they didn't they didn't the two of them didn't have any teaching.
1: correct. Yeah. Constantine was more so fighting on the eastern side to be okay. sole ruler on the east. Okay. So the Edict of Milan makes Christianity legal and also returns property. Oh. So I'll read a little bit, bit of it for you. So again, this is a joint edict from the two emperors. It says, Our purpose is to grant both to the Christians and to all others full authority to follow whatever worship each person has desired, whereby whatsoever divinity dwells in heaven may be benevolent and propitious to us, and to all who are placed under our authority, Therefore, we thought it salutary and most proper to establish our purpose that no person whatever should be refused complete toleration who has given up his mind either to the cult of the Christians or to the religion which he personally feels best suited to himself. It is our pleasure to abolish all conditions wherever were embodied in former orders directed to your office about the Christians, that every one of those who have a common wish to follow the religion of Christians may from this moment freely and unconditionally proceed to observe the same without any annoyance or disquiet." I know this is a translation.
0: So, but a couple of questions here: the cult of Christians. Uh, I'm taking that to mean it doesn't mean what we think it means now.
1: Yeah. Again, this is kind of a small, it, meaning small religious this sort identity, of religious movement identity. Okay? Yeah. yeah. And early Christianity in particular has a lot of mystery
0: mm-hmm.
1: wrapped up in it, and so things that are mysterious generally get called cults or mystery cults. So this is not cult in the Isolation from Present the world day. around you. Right.
0: Negative necessarily. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's okay. more just referring to something that is small and has that mystery aspect to it. Yeah. So a, a lot of people will credit Constantine with making Rome, the Roman Empire, Christian. And I would say he opens the door to that becoming the case. Mm-hmm. But in addition to giving. Christian's the right to worship freely. He is giving everyone the right to worship freely. So to the religion, which he personally best feels suits himself. Mm -hmm. So this is establishment of religious toleration kind of across the board. It's not until 380 and the Emperor Theodosius that we get the the Edict of Thessalonica, which makes Christianity, and specifically Nicene Christianity, which we'll talk about in a minute, the official religion of the Roman Empire. So Constantine just legalizes it, and then we have another, whatever that is, 65 years to go before mm. it has enough power to become the official official religion. But getting to legality is a huge step. And as I yeah. mentioned earlier, this is when we start to see the development of churches and things like that in mm. more permanent structures. So mm. this legalization and this ability to have and maintain property kind of unmolested is a huge step. In Christianity, becoming a bigger thing, becoming a more influential thing, and ultimately growing into the thing that we recognize it to be today. So, having defeated his co emperor and now being sole emperor of the East, Constantine needs a new capital. And so he decides he's going to build a new capital in Constantinople and dedicates it in 330. And starts major work about fortifying it. It was a city that existed before then on a kind of bluff oh. over the ocean. But did
0: it just happen to be named Constantinople?
1: No, did it had changed? another name before that. I yeah. See. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It had another name before that. But he then makes it into the city that it is today. And today mm. we know it as Istanbul. So from an art history standpoint this establishment of Constantinople is a really interesting one because this is the start of the Byzantine art style. And what's interesting as an art style is it forms fairly mature kind of right off the bat. And it's hard to separate Byzantine kind of secular art and Byzantine Christian art from each other because they're really, really interrelated. And it's, there's a lot of debate, even kind of even a hundred years after Constantine, about how intentional Constantine was as a spiritual capital and a spiritual center, but there's a lot of churches that are built. There's a lot of Christian art that is started with this building of Constantinople that continues on and just grows kind of more and more. And we'll talk about icons more in the third episode, but I just, I kind of want to note it here because it's important to say that As Constantine's building this capital, it's a very intentional building of a capital Hmm. with all of the, I'm going to kind of say non-verbals that come along with establishing a new capital city of, look at us, we have money, we have power, we're smart, we're together, we're in charge.
0: Mm. It sounds like he's being very intentional with curating and building a new culture that looks new, that feels new. Is that accurate?
1: Yes and no. What makes me say no is, and we'll also come back to this time and time again, the Byzantine understanding of themselves as Romans. So Constantinople Mm -hmm. gets nicknamed the New Rome. So Byzantines understand themselves to be Roman. Constantine is the Roman emperor. He just happens to be of the eastern part of the empire, but they understand themselves to be truly Roman. So it's not that he's going and starting this utterly brand new thing that has no roots. It's he's doing it in the East. There's Rome in the West and that's the seat of power for the Western part of the empire, but he's creating that new Rome mm. here in the East. And when you think of all of the kind of lore and mythos about Rome and its grandeur and its heritage mm. and it's mm-hmm. awesome at everything ever, right? Like that's, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: new Rome has to have all of that it. stuff as well. So it gets expressed in a, in a different way. And that is mm. that kind of newness that you were talking about, but it's but very it's attached. On
0: the tradition of Rome.
1: Yes. So Constantine, there's a lot of other things, and we're going to skip over most of them. He
0: sounds like he was a rather entrepreneurial sort of a fellow.
1: Yeah, so he's a little busy. <laughs> and specifically for this podcast, I want to talk about the First Council of Nicaea and the role that Constantine plays in that. So we've got him established as emperor, and he's going on doing his thing. Well, around the same time, the church is working to define what it is that it really believes. Hmm. So part of the reason why we can't just go from today back to the Church of Acts is because we lose a whole bunch of things. Like the canon and the Trinity and <laughs> Jesus being fully God and fully human and mm-hmm. how those things relate to each other. And we, we miss a lot of really important things. Concepts. And so, this is the period that the church is working all of that out and trying to expand on what they have from sort of a religious text standpoint, from the things that have passed down to them, and how do they really codify this and make this a legitimate thing, especially as it starts to spread. And one of the things we have to keep in mind, not only for this conversation, but throughout the whole season, is how seriously people take having correct orthodoxy. Hmm. So if you take really, really seriously that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to the Father except through him, you've got to make sure that you believe the right thing about that because the consequences right. of being wrong are significant and eternal. Mm-hmm. And so there is very much a concern about getting this right and get it and having the right things being taught. You brought up the Pauline letters earlier. Mm -hmm. Even from the Pauline letters, we can see that the church is kind of struggling with variation in teaching. And what is the right way as information is disseminated, but disseminated slowly and secondhand and thirdhand. Ah. And Mm -hmm. maybe one person in the community can read something, but everybody else can't. So what does Mm -hmm. that look like? And how do you maintain that? unity and in response to that question there's a ton of answers Mm. and one of the sets of answers is coming from a guy named Arius who was born around 256 and lives till about 338 and he's a priest in Alexandria and he's trying to figure this out like who who is Jesus and what does it mean when God says, you know, you you are my beloved and whom mm-hmm. I am well pleased. And and what do we what do we do with this, right? Because the idea of a divinely touched person is not a new one or a unique one. There's lots of religious traditions mm-hmm. who have divinely touched individuals. And even within the Hebrew scriptures, right, you have lots of folks who are divinely touched mm-hmm. and inspired, but who aren't the son of man, who aren't the messiah. So how does this all Work and itself prophets,
0: out. The tradition of prophets and yep. all those things in the Old yeah, Testament. and mm-hmm.
1: so but here we have this assertion that Jesus is a little bit different. Yeah. from all of them. So how do we how do we understand that? So Arius is trying to figure out how to explain the uniqueness of Jesus in this tradition of divinely touched individuals and prophets and all that, but he's different and special, and we have these kind of platonically influenced ideas about God being indivisible and unknowable and singular, and then we have this knowable corporal Mm -hmm. being of Jesus. So Arius comes to this idea that Jesus is the first of all creation. Hmm. So not God, but kind of above everything else, a little bit more maybe divine than everything else. So above angels above humans but this keyword here being that Jesus is created. Ah. And so this idea spreads and and becomes really popular. Apparently he also had a song. Oh, he did. Yes, he was a songwriter? Yes, and the lyrics were there was a time when he was not. There you really? go. At least that's part of the lyrics, according to. Oh, that's not, um, that's not the full song. I don't I don't know if that's the full song or not, and unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know the tune. But ac- according to one of the things that I read, that was a uh, a phrase from. There was a time when he was not correct. Oh, which is a very interesting statement. Correct, and I can I can tell from your eyebrows a very controversial one. Oh, indeed, because of where the church lands Quite. in regards to this Quite. controversy. Mm-hmm. So, we've got arianism and this idea of you know jesus is the first one creation there was a time when he was not and that's growing as a movement then we have other people saying no no jesus is god co-eternal with the father i'm trying really hard not to ultimately quote the nicene creed because i don't want to use the word in its definition of itself but you have these two opinions that are really struggling with each other Mm -hmm. to tease all of this out so why does the Empire care? This Why do they, is, they care? Well, the empire cares because by now there's enough Christians of critical mass that the empire needs its people as a whole to be unified. Mm. But now you have this subset that's pretty seriously in disagreement and struggle with itself. And that struggle is inherently destabilizing to the empire hmm. as a whole. So there's, there is this sense of which, like, okay, we kind of need to figure this out. Also within traditional Roman pagan religion the empire as a body politic was very involved in that discussion um right there was it was common to look for omens and things before mm. Making big decisions, particularly as Americans, this sense of church and state and that propriety just doesn't exist in the ancient world. They're not drawing those boundaries. You might have a specialized role as a priest or a seer or a senator, but that's not an exclusive hmm. thing. Okay. So Rome, just as an empire, just has this history of also getting involved. Okay. So there's... A lot of back and forth between Arius and his followers and um, the other group being led by Alexander, who's the bishop of Alexandria. So both of these guys are in Alexandria kind of duking it out. And it, it's getting pretty, pretty heated. So oh dear, Constantine sends both Arius and Alexander a letter and basically says, y'all need to figure yourself out. I don't know that he... Necessarily understood, like, kind of the consequences for Christianity between these two yeah. theological opinions. But he's seeing this divisiveness that's causing turn within his empire. And he's like, again, sort, sort yourselves out.
0: Because the Alexander is, what was Alexander's stance?
1: That Jesus was God. Okay. And he true, was not created. Correct. Yeah. Not created, true God from true God, of Got one it. being with the Father.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It broke down. Quoted the Nicene Creed. Oh, so <laughs> cute. foreshadowing foreshadowing. So Constantine calls this council in Nicaea, which is where he had his vacation home.
0: Oh, that works out well.
1: Yeah, it works out well for him. It really does. So he invites Arius, Alexander, bunch of bishops. He probably had some discussion or at least approval from the pope in doing this, but he says, "Hey, we're going to we're going to have this council. And we're going to sort this out." And one of the accounts that I read of it was really interesting. So he had everybody come in and take their seats. And then he comes in clad in gold and like wearing like precious stones and jewels. (laughs) And then sits on a golden chair. (laughs) So if you didn't know who was in charge and who was powerful and fancy, you do now. And so he basically kicks it off and says, we're going to work this out. We're going to come to agreement on a statement of faith i'll leave you to specifically about this issue so specifically about this issue there were a couple of other small ones but this was the the main agenda topic was okay. to figure out how does jesus relate to god yeah okay so he seems to have kind of left <laughs> after that and oh, let them and let them work it out grand entrance but, i'll leave you to it Yep. off i go yep and he had a main religious advisor who was probably who was more involved in the kind of day-to-day running of it. Constantine himself doesn't really seem to have cared what specific outcome they came to. Some of his closest collaborators and allies were Arians, followed Arius, and some weren't. So it just seems like he just wanted a... You just wanted everybody to get along. Yes. So ultimately, they come up with this resolution that we now call the Nicene Creed Mm -hmm. that I've been trying desperately not to quote. (laughs) But if we look at it, we can really see this controversy at work, right? So we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, here we go. The only begotten of the Father that is of one substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father, through whom all things were made in both heaven and on earth. And then it goes on. But So Alexander won. So Alexander won. So mm. the church comes down with this very decisive, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So the council comes up with this. Most people sign it. Um, apparently all but five agreed to it. And then they whittled that five down to two people oh. who disagreed. So... Pretty unanimous agreement from the bishops that were present. And then those who did not agree were exiled and anathemized. Oh. And expelled from the church. And then Arius oh. and his writings were also banned as anathema. And his books were cast into the fire. Um, and he was exiled. So. Oh, me. When you lose the church <laughs> council meeting, you lose pretty. It's very um, Dramatically. It is. But again, when you look at this through the lens of people thinking that people's eternal souls are at stake. Yeah. Okay, I I can I can follow it better. So this isn't a theology
0: podcast, right? But I do I do ask the question of
1: It's hard to do one without the other.
0: Indeed. So right, so you know, there is the there is the passage in Colossians one. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You know, so that that question
1: exists then. What does that mean? Right, and so once Nicaea happens and we have this God from God, true God from true God of one being with the Father declaration, the next bulk of church councils are going to be spent trying to figure out what does that mean? <laughs> what How exactly does Jesus' humanity and divinity relate to each other? And we're going to hmm. get into some really deep, finessed, metaphysical arguments about will, substance, nature, being— all of these kinds of things, because none of this is self evident, and so I think sometimes it can be hard for us to you know, look at areas and go, "You're you're out of your mind." Like, wh- why right. why would you ever possibly think that? Well, it's there. It's there. There's there's a foundation for it, and so a lot of these kind of movements that get ultimately labeled as heresies. They're not absurd. They're people taking things really seriously and thinking through Mm -hmm. them really seriously. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for us to look at them and study them because they're not... Just be aware. Yeah, to be aware, right? Because, again, they're not utter nonsense. They're Mm -hmm. just not where the church settles. Right. Mm -hmm. So going back to the council, I, I do think this is a little bit funny. The end of the Council of Nicaea aligned with the 20th anniversary of Constantine ascending to the throne, oh,
0: so he
1: yeah, so he invites the bishops to a party, gives them lots of presents, and then asks for their prayers and uh, sends them home. Oh, um, he gives them presents. He gives though. them presents. That's very nice. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about this
0: guy. Yeah, like he's eccentric. He's clearly got big visions, big plans, but then he'll do these random things, they, like give gifts to people. Maybe
1: that was just cultural, but. Well, cultural, but also, I think, strategic mm. in a way. Right now you're going home with tales of the emperor's generosity, wow. of how magisterial he is in his golden bejeweled <laughs> robes his, and his, his gold bejeweled. chair, um, right? How how powerful he is. Uh-huh. And, and also you're going home with this unified, the church and the emperor hereby present you the Nicene Creed. So I, I do think there's a little bit of of all of that mm-hmm. at work. And it depends. You know, you can read that any number of ways of look at Constantine being so nice and also look at Constantine being so conniving. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> those And they might be one in the same, right? So interestingly though, this is not the end of the story, right? Just, just because some people in Nicaea in a council room came up with a resolution. I mean, it, ha- it has real impacts, but that doesn't mean that everybody... Just says, oh, okay, thank you very much. I'm just going to change my belief system Indeed. and, you know, flip, right. flip to this new one. Also, right dissemination of information getting out takes, takes a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is particularly, I think, interesting and noteworthy is there are a number of Germanic tribes that are coming and they're starting to interact with the Roman Empire. And by interact, I mean have land squabbles and start oh to start to infringe on the boundaries of the Roman Empire. So dumb question, what does Germanic mean? Germanic is a kind of large umbrella term for a number of different people groups okay. that we're going to be talking about. Okay. So that includes the Visigoths, the Franks, the Gauls, the Ostrogoths, they Ostrogoths. Yes. My
0: gosh. Yep. That sounds like something you'd find in a metal festival or something. I, I
1: would say the metal festival was inspired. Austergoths. <laughs> yeah, so so these are all these people groups. They're tribal. They they share okay. some cultural markers in terms of often warrior-based cultures with mm. chieftain leading that are organized around a chieftain. They're not Beowulf, but like <laughs> Beowulf think is... Think about Beowulf. Think about Beowulf. Got it, um, okay. Is going to be... In the spirit of that Got tradition. It. Okay. And so the Visigoths are coming kind of down and around and around. I'm making hand motions that no one can see. Yeah. They're coming yeah, I can sort of them. down, down from the north, but also into modern day Spain. And so they're coming from that side. They come into northern Africa and are kind of pushing up that way. So they're kind of on all sides of the, the Roman hmm. Empire in this conversation. Okay. And in particular, the Visigoths, who are coming down from the, the top, kind of northern Italy down, they are Aryans. The oh, Aryan style of Christianity yeah. reaches them okay. first. Okay. So as they convert to Christianity, this is the type of Christianity that they are converting to. Yeah. Okay. So we see some really interesting dynamics of this. Like who received what type of Christianity first right. and who holds it their right and... You know, the Visigoths didn't participate in the Council of Nicaea. They
0: hmm.
1: aren't under the auspices of the Emperor of Rome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Either the Byzantine one or the Western one. <laughs> right. So they're not going to respond super well to the, mm-hmm. this edict from the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. And they, in turn, are going to generally promote Arian Christianity and restrict or persecute Nicene Christianity. Well, then sometimes you'll have, you know, an emperor kind of next door who believes the opposite and is like, well, if you're oppressing my Nicene people, I'm going to oppress your Aryan people. And again, just because you declare something in a council doesn't make it unilateral true. But eventually, with Nicene Christianity being the Christianity that is supported by the empire is kind of the officially sanctioned version, it becomes the dominant leaf and ultimately arianism fades out as got it sort of anything large or significant within they don't
0: really have leadership to continue that train of thought if arius gets booted out and his writings are destroyed presumably there's a trickle down in leadership that would kind of
1: wipe out that yeah right and give and give it a couple of generations and yeah okay it's gonna become far less Mm -hmm. far less common For me, Constantine calling the Council of Nicaea and presiding over it to at least some degree is such a really important precedent for the rest of Christian history, um, especially over the next couple hundred years, that there is this really close relationship between the emperor and the church. We're going to see it time and time again of emperors are going to show up at church councils and call church councils, Mm -hmm. and they're going to be important for saying, hey guys, there's something divisive going on and you need to figure it out. And this really sets that precedent. But as I mentioned before, this isn't coming out of nowhere, right? Rome has this long-standing idea of blending the political and the religious and specifically we see it starting with Julius Caesar, first emperor, right when Rome moves from being a republic to being an empire and he takes on a lot of these titles throughout his life, but after he dies in particular, he becomes deified. And that then kind of passes down and when Augustus who succeeds him dies Augustus gets to be deified and then we sort of hit this period of time where like kind of deified during your life as well hmm. and it's like a semi-honorary title but like some of the populists like legitimately believe that Caesar was deified so it were hmm. the emperors really gods mm. they certainly had the titles yeah it, right okay. so this idea of a deified a blessed divinely touched leader is a really entrenched one um, within Roman understanding and Roman thought. And it, was, it lasted really up through the second century and then it started to decline. So it, it really does overlap with Christianity. And so Christianity has this touchy relationship with it, right? The emperor can't be God, mm-hmm. but they are this kind of extra special individual. So into this world of the imperial cult and this divine emperor, Christianity starts to step in. And then you have Constantine with his connection with Christianity. Again, is he Christian or not? Sort of irrelevant because history believes him to be. And there's this joining of belief that Constantine's success is indicative of divine favor. And that we need to keep divine favor because it keeps us safe and stable from a, I say secular standpoint, but from like a livelihood standpoint. And so... There's a professor named Robert Browning who was a Byzantine history professor in the UK. I think he summarizes this really well. He talks about how, that starting with Constantine on, the power of the emperor is not merely a function of the armed forces, but is also a token of having been chosen by God to rule. And moreover, the Roman Empire was not merely a state. It was part of the divine plan for the salvation of mankind the one Christian empire which belonged to a different order of being from other political communities and which in the fullness of time would become coextensive with the human race. Hmm. So we really start to see this shift from Constantine on of it's not just the Roman Empire, now it's a Christian empire bringing Christianity to all of humanity in some ways. And so Browning goes on to say that the permanence of the Roman Empire was seen no longer as a mere matter of fact but as an essential part of the divine plan for the salvation of mankind. The first step had been the unification of the civilized world under Augustus at the time of the birth of Christ. This was now seen to have been a necessary condition for the rapid spread of Christianity. He continues on, as there was one God, so there could only be one empire and one emperor. In the words of the preamble of one of Justinian's decrees, it's under the authority of God that we rule the empire, which has been entrusted to us by his clerical, not clerical, (laughs) by his celestial majesty that we bring our war's successful conclusion that we maintain the position of our commonwealth. So that is a lot of things to say, that this idea of the Roman Empire having the expanse and the power that it had was necessary so that when Christianity came into the Roman Empire, Christianity could spread. Yeah. And then also it's important to then maintain that empire so that we can maintain that unity. And I think this kind of parallel of there being one god so there must be one empire and one Mm -hmm. emperor we tried that two emperor thing right Mm -hmm. back at the beginning that didn't work too well we're back to one that there is this kind of sense of joining in those Mm -hmm. in those missions thanks so much for listening to this episode of church historia we really appreciate you joining us on this journey If you want more, you can always check on our website at churchhistoria.com where you can
0: join our email list. And do be sure you subscribe to this show on your platform of choice
1: so that you will always know when we have a new episode. And as always, if you enjoy what we do, we'd love it if you would share it with others as well. So if you like it, spread the word, tell your friends. We would be so grateful. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks.